The End. When we watch movies, sometimes we see the phrase, The End. That tells us that the story is over, there's nothing more. Many people consider death to be the end. When the disciples saw Jesus die on the cross, they thought that was the end. This was just the intermission. Jesus' death had a purpose. Payment needed to be made to offset our sin debt. The proof that our payment was accepted was Jesus' resurrection. His followers had a hard time believing until Jesus appeared to them and proved he was alive. This touched off the most astounding growth of Christianity throughout the entire world for about the last 2,000 years. Should not we, as Christians, be excited over the news that our sins have all been paid for and that we are debt-free? Have you been spreading the news? Hello, and welcome to God's Word for You for today from Liberty Lake Church. Today we have a special message by Pastor Lee Kissman, the District Superintendent of the Evangelical Free Churches of America. So take out your Bible and open it to the book of Luke, chapter 24, verse 1, and follow along with Pastor Lee as he reminds us of Jesus' resurrection purpose we ought to be excited about in the message titled, He is Risen, Just As He Said. Mike working okay? Did I fail? No, there we go. We're on. What a privilege to be here. Um, a word of exhortation, because it is Easter Sunday, although I'm not much into Ishtar. I always like to call this Resurrection Sunday, but you know how things morph over the years. In 1789, the year before his death, Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to one of his friends in France, hoping that he was still alive because of the French Revolution that was raging in the aftermath. He said, I hope that you are well. I'm sure if you were not, I would have heard something by now. He continued to write and said, our Constitution is finished, and everything points to its duration. Although there is nothing certain in this world except death and taxes. And uh, many of us remember that quote. Now you know where it comes from. En français, s'il vous plaît. It is April 1st. Tax day is coming. And uh, how many people long and pray for the day when we might see a reduction in our taxes. But how much better still to see a reduction in sin, a reduction in the penalty of sin, a deliverance from the very power, penalty, and presence of sin is what we're celebrating today, taxes notwithstanding. It's also April Fool's Day, and I would utterly fail if I didn't note in the eyes of some people, there's no fool greater than this crowd right here. No set of fools greater than that company of Christians who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was born of a virgin, that he was crucified for sins and was raised from the dead. 
More absurd still is the idea that the heavens will one day part and the sign of the Son of Man will be revealed in the heavens and the nations of the earth will mourn. But the Lord himself will descend with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will be raised first and then we who are alive and remain shall be joined with him and together we shall be with the Lord forever. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's the doctrine and the hope of Christians. Foolish? Whatever. My Bible tells me that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the day will tell the difference between those who are wise and those who profess to be wise. But we never do get used to death or taxes. It hurts our feelings every single time someone passes away that we knew and loved so much. And as much as we are violated by it, we are assured that there's a universal experience of death. Paul wrote in the book of Romans that from Adam to Christ, death reigned. And in Hebrews, it says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. I remember as a little boy hearing that my grandma had died, and I guess to protect us, we found out long after she had passed and actually after the funeral had taken place. We had no participation in it, and so no real experience of it. Not face-to-face, not with the eye. It still hurt our feelings. Several years later, my little sister was buried in a snow avalanche. way to remember January 27th, 1974, when much of our family narrowly escaped from acres of snow coming down off of a precipice at the Alpenthal ski area. Buried my 10-year-old little sister alive and her 12-year-old friend. We didn't find them for eight months. I remember as a 14-year-old laying on my bed at night every day that following week, looking at a clock pointed my bedroom from her bedroom and thinking, oh my goodness, I will never see Jeannie again, ever, ever, ever. It's far from dignified for a 14-year-old to cry, but I cried until there were no more tears left to flow. Really hurt my feelings. And imagine my poor mama. You see, January 27th was her birthday. And my folks were divorced, and my dad had taken the kids out for a fun day in the snow and had to finish that day by coming home with me and my brother and getting on the phone and calling her at her birthday party to tell her that Jeannie was gone. And in a way, I'm glad I wasn't there to see my mom who surely collapsed to her knees, her heart wrenched away, and just thought, are you kidding me? But that's part of our family's story. No one is accepted from this fate. Death comes to us all. And uh, I live 
now in the northwest corner of Spokane with my wife. We're building a little house. It was a trashy little place that I proposed to remodel, so it's been a four-year labor of love, labor of something. <laughs> and in our front yard are two glorious maple trees that were planted there when that house was built, I'm sure, in 1938. Now, I tore that house to the ground, and I'm rebuilding something nice. But the trees stay, and I hope they stay as long as I live. They provide shade. It's a home for the squirrels. The leaves are beautiful. In the fall, when they change colors, I just sit on my porch and just look at them. And just this fall, while I was sitting on my porch enjoying that sight, I had a little spiritual epiphany. I was watching the leaves fall one by one at the rate, really, of about one per second. Just And I thought, man. Every single one of those leaves is going to fall off that tree. And soon the branches will be bare. Not most of them, not some of them, but every single one. Well, it seems obvious, biologically speaking. But it was just one of those spiritual, metaphorical moments for me. And I just thought, that's just like people. That's like all the people that I know and love in my life, including me. The days of our life are numbered by the Lord. And one day, my little leaf is just going to lose its connection and just go. And there will be a gathering just like this. Remembering good old Lee Kissman, whatever his name was, <laughs> whatever he did. And in 30 minutes or less, you'll survey my supposed virtues and accomplishments. And that'll be it. A few years later, it'll be like Lee who? Death is the most universal experience of mankind. It's always painful for those who fall and those who look on and watch. For them, it is also painful. How wonderful, then, the words that were first on the lips of the faithful at that first sunrise service. He is not here. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is risen, just as he said. Now, depending on your point of view, that is the most preposterous thing ever to be said and repeated, or else it is the most glorious news to ever be proclaimed on the face of the earth. Today, we read in the resurrection account in Luke's gospel, and if we can put it up the screen, boy, this is just a sad thing, isn't it? All right. Um, I'm going to read it, and you can follow along either there or in your Bible. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. 
But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. I want to talk to you about some of the important points of this resurrection narrative this morning because it is so encouraging and inspiring and reminds us of several important things about what the Lord has done here. And who got to be part of this first day's experience of this resurrection and what it meant? First point I want to make is just uh, the lack of expectation in any resurrection. We see first these people coming to the tomb to finish up what they had started Friday. Laying a good man to rest. Finishing the preparation of his body for a burial. The linen wrappings and the spices were all part of that preparation according to the custom of the people in the east there. When they came early in the morning to that tomb, they were not expecting anything unusual. They were not expecting a rolled away stone or an empty tomb or angels or anything like that. In fact, if you can just imagine those women approaching the garden tomb, you can almost feel them tense up a little bit like, we need to do this. We're glad to do this. It's pretty rough because we loved him so, and they destroyed him. What a ghastly sight to see there Jesus, who had been flogged, beaten, nailed to a cross, and pierced with a sword, now dead. And on the third day, not your favorite sightseeing excursion. We might imagine what their conversation was like as they approached the tomb with their supplies, if there was any conversation at all. It's good to think about that, the prelude to the resurrection discovery. They weren't really expecting anything great at all. Just the visible sign of a great disappointment. The next thing that we see is their discovery of the resurrection. These women found two things. A stone that had been rolled away. And we expect it was a mighty stone, something they probably would have needed help to move if they were going to have access to that tomb. And I don't really know what their plan was for 5 a.m. We're not told that. But it was already rolled away, and they just thought, 
excellent. Somebody, after the Sabbath, is helping us out here and just making our task a little easier. The one less thing that we've got to deal with. But when they went inside, this tomb that had been hewn in the stone, they found that it was empty. And we were told that the linen wrappings were there in place as though the body had just vaporized. What is this? Not at all what they expected. A little bewildering. Like, well, where is he? Has someone stolen him? Has someone else undertaken the task of preparation for final burial? Did they move him to another? Maybe Joseph of Arimathea changed his mind and thought, no, he shall not have my tomb. I need that for my mother-in-law. And Jesus will have to have something a little less opulent. right? But we are told that... Uh, their discovery of something quite surprising was interrupted by two angels whose, whose clothing was dazzling and bright. The Greek word there is it's shining like a star, like a shooting star, a flashing star in the night is the root word there for that dazzling apparel. Instantly, they discerned that these were divine beings of some kind, angelic beings of some kind. They bowed their faces low and were somewhat nervous which is universally the case in scriptures. I always notice people nowadays when they talk about meeting angels, they always just have this great story to tell and they're just conversing with them. And I never hear people talk about how freaked out they were and were on their face on the ground. But by the way, if that happened to me, that's where I would be. Bam! Please don't look at me or talk to me or touch me because this doesn't seem great. So it was for the shepherds on Christmas, right? But what did they say? Don't be afraid. We've got great news for you. And as it was then, so it was today on this resurrection day. Hey, ladies, what are you doing? Why are you looking for the living here in a tomb? Some of the translations say, why are you looking for the living one? But in the Greek, it just says, why are you looking for the living among the dead, literally? Looking for Jesus? How do they know this stuff? Who are you? Just emissaries from your heavenly father. Looking for Jesus? He's not here. He is risen. Just like he said. Remember his words that he spoke to the disciples in Galilee. And we do remember, if you recall in Matthew 16, there's this great little uh, snippet there when they're at Caesarea Philippi at a pagan uh, temple kind of carved into the hillsides with all kinds of deities there. And while they were there, Jesus, remember, asked the question of his disciples and said, who do you say that I am? And they answered and said, well, some say that you are Elijah, come back to life, and some say you're the prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life. And you'll recall how Jesus said, well, but who do you say that I am? And you'll recall how Simon Peter, Peter the most impetuous of the disciples, stepped forward 
And he said, well, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Good job, Peter. Check that box. And Jesus said, the father is revealed to you, not, not flesh and blood. Affirming what he had said. Peter thought he was on a roll. And Jesus went on to say that the Son of Man would soon be actually betrayed in the hands of evil men and crucified and, and be put to death and rise on the third day. And Peter, wanting to go two for two, said, Oh, Lord, may it never be. You know, teacher's pet, best student. I got more stuff to say. <laughs> and pat me on the head now. What a shock when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You have not set your mind on the things of God, but on the agenda of man. That's my paraphrase. Got it totally wrong. But that was at least one occasion, and probably the first um, and greatest occasion, where Jesus made it clear that that was his destiny, was to be crucified and to rise. And the women remembered and later on, the disciples remembered those kinds of things. And then we see the um, testimony, the report of the resurrection, our third point. First was the angel's testimony, which we just had. But then the women's testimony. Of course, they went running to the disciples to tell them all that they'd seen and heard. And uh, they did not get the reception that they expected, I don't think. Can you imagine them running and finding the disciples, whether they were all together or some scattered groups, and saying, fellas, you're not going to believe this. Went to the tomb. He's not there. We saw two angels. They told us that he's risen from the dead. Great news. What was the reception that they got to their news? These words appeared to them as nonsense, it says, the about third line from the bottom. Uh, some of your translations say it was seemed like to them as an idle tale. In those days, um, very often, uh, you know, a woman's testimony was not even credible in a court of law. It's not accepted as legitimate testimony. Talk about lack of equality for our girls. It's so much better now, I think. You can be called for jury duty now. <laughs> but how frustrating for them to have been an eyewitness to all these things to come with the glad tidings and just be told like, silence, you silly woman, you are delusional. This is wishful thinking. Your emotions are running away with you. Can't just be making stuff up. What on earth? What are you talking about? I do know that it was the Lord's good pleasure to have these women be the first to know that he was raised. And the first name on that list is who? Now they were Mary Magdalene. You guys, 
This is not accidental. Like the scripture just doesn't stutter ever. Every jot and tittle is God's perfection of communication to us for reasons. What a gracious and powerful message the Lord makes by making the very first person to have a chance to participate in this discovery of the resurrection of the Son of God and one of the most notorious sinners in the neighborhood, Mary Magdalene, who was an adulteress, and it was said she had demons. But Jesus delivered her from them all and had pardoned her and gave her the privilege of being in the first group to see and know. That is the wisdom of God. <laughs> he is always happy to take the least of us, the weakest of us, even the worst of us, and show how he can turn the world upside down and demonstrate his grace and his power and his wisdom so that we'll know for sure it's not ours. I like that. Whatever you think about women and women's rights, know this. And please, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to give these gals a front row seat to the greatest discovery the world has ever had a chance to make. Amen? Amen. Yeah. We're for women. Never let it be said that we're anything but that. I want to talk uh, just for a second about five things implied by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm extrapolating this from what the angels said to these women. These are things that the, the disciples and the church figured out quickly, and soon it became the core of their preaching. But I think it's, it's just instructive and strengthening for us this morning to think about not just that there was a resurrection of Jesus, but what it means that there was a resurrection of Jesus. The angel said, why are you looking here? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember, he told you that he would be risen. So here's the five things. And those of you that are just uh, Bible scholars or Bible nerds, as some might call you, um, You'll appreciate this. Number one, Jesus' words are true. They were true about this, and they were true about everything that he said. Like, he is a reliable source of truth. And I note that it was not only that the disciples could remember that Jesus promised to rise from the dead in Caesarea Philippi, but isn't it fascinating that the angels also knew about that? When Jesus speaks, heaven and earth, have a chance to record it for all posterity. When Jesus speaks, it is as sure, it is as certain, it is as truthful, factually, spiritually, actually, as when God with his finger wrote on the Ten Commandments stones for Moses the law. He's not mostly right, mostly factual. He is always truthful and reliable. Accurate to the nth degree. Secondly, Jesus' words are prophetic. He speaks truly about all, all fields of knowledge, but he is also to speak about things that haven't even happened yet. 
He did that about his own death, and he did about a lot of other things as well. Why well, I recall when he was walking up to the tomb of his good friend Lazarus, and everybody was concerned that he was taking a sweet time, and he could have come earlier and even healed him of what ailed him. But Jesus said, this death is going to be for the glory of God. You guys don't need to be so freaked out here. And soon they had a chance to watch him walk up to that tomb and say, Lazarus, come forth. And he said, Lord, but I mean, he, he's been dead four days. He will be stinking. But he did come forth, and they unwrapped him, the one that they lost. And he was restored to his sisters and all his friends. Jesus knows exactly what he is up to, what he is saying, and even what he is promising to do. He said he would rise, and he did. Echoing, I think, what Bob was saying earlier this morning, Jesus said that he would go make a place for us and that he would come again. And he is fully able to pull that off. He said that if he goes, he will come again and receive us to himself and that where he is, we shall also be with him. You can believe that. When Jesus said that at the end of the ages, there will be a great tribulation, and that the earth will be reeling because of the judgments of God, you can bet it's going to come to pass. And when Jesus said that he would be revealed in the heavens and come and receive his own unto him, you can bet it's going to be true. Number three implication of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is this, that Jesus is the son of God. He's not just a good teacher, an excellent rabbi, some kind of a shaman, right? It proves that he is the son of God. I give you two examples of that. Number one, from John chapter 10, when Jesus talked about being the good shepherd, remember this. He said, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Who has the audacity? to say that they have the authority to lay down their life and the authority to take it up again. You can't be serious. But he did. And when they found that empty tomb and later on when they beheld his very person and touched the wounds in his hands and in his side and in his feet, there is only one conclusion to come to. He is the God-man. God incarnate, he is the son of God. The apostle Paul said the same thing in Romans 1, 4. You don't have to look this up, I just read it to you, but it says that Jesus was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection forever and finally marks Jesus as the one who came and tabernacled among us. God come down, God in the flesh. God who can speak and say and do such things as this. No man ever spoke like this in all the universe and performed accordingly. I am always so tickled when people say, it's just malarkey, it's baloney, and a lot of other things that I can't say in church. 
all religions are basically the same. All religious leaders are basically the same and say the same things. You cannot be serious. The only people that say that are the people that have never read squat. Pardon me. The fourth thing that the resurrection implies is that Jesus' death was an accepted sacrifice for sin. It's one thing to die on the cross and for people to say that that means something. It's quite another thing to die on the cross and raise from the dead. And it's all it's as though God the Father put a stamp of approval on that sacrifice so that when Jesus said, it is finished, we understand that what was finished there was not his mortal life. What was finished and accomplished there was a great work of redemption, planned out, prepared for from the foundation of the world. And he did a great job, right? He didn't whine and cry and squeal like a girl. Oh, no, I just undid the whole... Ah! It's just a saying. But there was a dignity in his suffering. Just like the scripture said, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he was silent. You have but seven profound utterances from Jesus on the cross. And so without digging myself in the hole more, may I just say that he was exquisitely manly in his suffering. And it was sufficient. A sacrifice sufficient for the sins of the whole world, for every one of them, for all of time. From Adam and Eve all the way till the martyrs in the book of Revelation, it is sufficient, his blood, to cover the sins of us all. Not because there were so many gallons of blood shed, but because of the quality of the life and the blood that was given there. Sufficient to pardon every single one of us who believes. His resurrection proves that it was an acceptable sacrifice and that he was not vanquished by sin or death or the devil himself. The fifth thing that I just want to say is that Jesus' resurrection, of course, is the prelude to our own resurrection. In the early church, amazingly, a doctrine was emerging that Paul addressed in writing to the Corinthians it seems unthinkable to us, but they were teaching in the Christian circles of disciples that the dead are not raised. Now, can you imagine Christianity without resurrection? I don't know what kind of a philosophical system that becomes, but it's just unthinkable to us. But Paul had to address this line of thinking in 1 Corinthians. And I just read from you 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 12 on. If Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they perished. 
If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But in the very next verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he states it positively. But now Christ has been raised. You think, well, how could such a screwy doctrine emerge in the church? Well, look what's going on in our own day in some churches that have the name Christian over it. And they are teaching anything but gospel truth on any number of doctrinal points. We got to know our word and keep ourselves and our friends always in the truth. And maybe it goes without saying that because Jesus was raised from the dead, you can have confidence to know that resurrection is possible and that his promise of your resurrection is certain. Jesus said in John chapter 5, an hour is now coming and as is, and now is, when those who are in the tomb shall hear the voice of the Son of Man and shall rise. The righteous to a resurrection of life and the unrighteous to a resurrection of judgment. Now there's a little twist right there, huh? All shall rise. But the question is, when the Lord calls your name, are you rising to life or eternal perdition? How wonderful that the scriptures say that we can have our names written in the Lamb's book of life if we put our trust in the crucified one. If not, this is our proclamation of truth to the world. Believe and be saved. The um, last little section I want to do is just the incredulity of the disciples. When they heard the women's report, they rejected it out of hand. And they were living in the facts and in the truth of what they had just experienced. They saw Jesus arrested, tried, beaten, and crucified, and buried. And that's what they knew. He's gone. He's dead, completely dead and forever dead. And it seemed like the women's message was just insane. And not only did they see all of that happen, but as they watched Jesus crucified, all their dreams of the coming kingdom of God perished with him. Their full expectation was that Jesus was going to Jerusalem, would ascend and sit on the throne of David, restore the kingdom to Israel, establish justice, in a worldwide sense, for all the nations to experience perfect peace and that people would throng to Jerusalem to hear him teach the law. Furthermore, they expected that they would be his prime ministers sitting on his right and his left as he executed judgment and ruled in righteousness. All of that was gone when he was crucified. And I'm sure they spent those first few days trying to reconstruct their worldview and their view of Jesus. What a pity. It was all cut short. I just can't imagine what their thought processes were. Thomas Jefferson, for different reasons, 
also regretted that Jesus was cut off in his prime. And Jefferson saw Jesus not so much as a savior, but as a philosopher. How many of you are Jefferson students, founding father students? Jefferson is an interesting character. He, he thought of himself as a philosopher. He wanted to be all wise. He thought that it was unfortunate that Jesus met an untimely end because he didn't have enough time to develop his philosophical system. How unfortunate he died at age 30-something. Why, if he could have lived to be 65, he could have completed a system. Good as it was, he felt it was just so imperfect. Mr. Jefferson, have you ever met Jesus Christ? I am a friend of Jesus Christ. You don't know anything about Jesus Christ. Jefferson had that point of view about Jesus. In fact, he took the New Testament and clipped out all the phrases and paragraphs that had to do with the miraculous or anything attributing deity to Jesus and instead pasted together all the good parts of Jesus' teaching. And you can still access that. It's called the Jefferson Bible. And he just removes everything metaphysical in his opinion to get to the pure philosophical golden nuggets of Jesus' teaching. And all you are left with is a pathetic string of things like the golden rule, which mean nothing if not in context of everything else that he had to say. Well, I would say to you that the disciples were a little bit further ahead of Jefferson, <laughs> but they were also sorely lacking in their understanding of Jesus' mission. When he came to the end of his life, it's not like Jefferson said that a good philosopher in his prime was cut off before he could finish his system. Nor was it that the Messiah lacked the powers to execute his mission. When Jesus came to his cross, it was not the end of all things good. It was the crown of all things good. Jesus was not confused about the purpose of his life, what his mission in the world was. He gave it to us, and it's recorded in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now, Jesus in his lifetime, he, he demonstrated many graces, and he gave out many gifts. He healed people that were sick. He multiplied food when people were hungry. On a couple occasions, he raised from the dead even a little girl and his friend Lazarus. But whatever gifts Jesus dispensed in his earthless, earthly ministry, they all pale when compared to the gift of his life and ministry, which was to give his life a ransom for many. And how foolish we are sometime in our churches when we spend all of our time asking Jesus for trinkets. Oh, Lord, if I can have that job and a shiny new car and a prettier, better wife and whatever else, I would be so blessed. You don't need any of that stuff. But you have need of one thing, deliverance from sin and death and hell. It is our greatest need. 
What does it profit a man if you gain the whole world and you shall have three Cadillacs and a big, nice house up there on the hill and a shiny new wife? <laughs> good fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. And with all the things that kids ask for, the father knows the one thing that they need the most. And they see to it. Good fathers give the best of fine things that matter for a lifetime, like a good education and virtuous friends and moral teaching in their words and in their life and a marriage that gives security and safety to their own offspring. Your heavenly father knows exactly the one thing that you need, and that is a rescue from a terminal illness that we all share in. It is sin and its consequence, death. And it is no small thing. It is not accidental. It is not trivial. And it is not philosophically failing for Jesus to come to do the one thing that remedies everything that is wrong with us. To save our souls from sin. He paid the penalty for it then calls you a son and a daughter and gives you a standing in him because of faith and then pours out his Holy Spirit into your life that you might have power to live not for yourself, but to live for him forevermore. And that all of us could live a love life of blessing that reflects well on his name and is a blessing to all your neighbors and your friend and your kids and your grandkids and your cousins to cause you to be born again. This is what Jesus has come to do. Mr. Jefferson, epic fail in your attitude and understanding of the life of Jesus Christ. How wonderful for the disciples and all their muddle-headedness that same night after the women had told him what was true as they doubted and even said, like Thomas, unless I put my finger in the holes in his hands and touch his side. I'll not believe it. Oh, my Jesus is so awesome. That evening, while they are gathered in perhaps that same upper room where they had the last supper, cowering because of fear of the Jews, Jesus appears as though walking through walls and says, Hello, fellas. Shalom. <laughs> right? Hey, Thomas, just saying, uh, if you want to, check it out. I am not a spirit. I am not a ghost. You come and see and touch and feel, and you, you know that that's what you need. You come have some tangible proof of what my friends this morning told you was true. I am alive, and I live forevermore. What did Thomas do? Do you remember the story? So awesome. He just bowed down before Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. There's a danger, folks, of us becoming weary of doctrine, experience doctrinal fatigue. You know how they talk about on the news? Sometimes they run these news stories over and over and over and over again until you're just sick of hearing it 
and you don't even listen anymore. Well, that can happen to us as Christians where we hear things over and over and over and we are familiar with all the blessed truths of our faith, but after a while, what happens? We get used to the good news, so after a while, it becomes in our soul like old news. Like the scriptures say, we can become dull of hearing. And what is most necessary for us to do this morning, but daily, is to just ask God by his mercy to cultivate and just plow up the hard soil of our hearts and refresh us with the joy of these greatest things that he has given to us. Like when you found your wife, remember when you were 19 and you went to the altar? You guys, you saw your bride come down that aisle on her father's arm and you just thought, oh man, I'm going to pass out. Like She's actually agreeing to marry me and like in like 30 seconds she's going to say, I do. And she is like, beautiful! Look at that dress, pearls, oh, eyelash. You can't hardly believe it's happening to like your heart is just pounding. 40 years later, where are you at? That's the wife. <laughs> Seriously? Let us return to what is real. I, I close with this funny little story. My granddaughter, Alessa, she, she lives in Guatemala. My daughter's a missionary there. This little girl's really chatty. Like, she's been talking since she was four months old nonstop. Never takes a breath. English and Spanish. So a couple of years ago, she was just like two and a half years old, and they came to the States to do some fundraising. And Laurel and I were helping a church out in eastern Montana by Miles City, just like way out in the boonies in cowboy country. And the kids were there for Christmas time. It was pretty fun for everybody, for our little church and for my daughter and we had a Hallmark Christmas winter in the snow in eastern Montana with sleigh rides and like horses and bells and all that. And during those two weeks, we went out to a Chinese restaurant in Miles City. I'm surprised they even had one because like all they ate out there is steak. I'll have steak with a side of steak, steak for dessert, steak milkshake, cows everywhere. We found this uh, Chinese restaurant. And so the six of us sit down, me and Laurel, my daughter Melanie, her husband Alex, and their little girls, Alessa and Olivia. And we all ordered the good stuff. But Alessa, we thought she's kind of little. We'll just get her a bowl of noodles, okay? Soft noodles, spaghetti-like noodles almost. And... Uh, Waitress sets our food before us, and Alessa gets her little spoon, and she digs in. And after about 30 seconds, she put her spoon down, and she looked up at us. And she said, are you kidding me? These noodles are great. It's two and a half. I don't even know where she got the are you kidding me part from. But then she thought the noodles were great. It was just as hilarious. And we've never forgotten it. She wasn't done. She had more to say about those noodles. And then just with all the enthusiasm a person could ever hope to muster, she was just shoving those noodles in and just happy as could be. My friends, you have more than white bread and butter 
more than plain noodles in Jesus Christ. You have every gift and grace that a person could ever hope and dream for for their life, both here and for eternity. And should our response be anything less than that little girl's enthusiasm for what she had set before her? Should it not be this Sunday and every Sunday we would quote the words of that old gospel sense, song? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he hath done. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but the choir ought to sing pretty loud <laughs> in and out of church. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a gift you have given your own precious son, giving his life away for us, and then you vindicated it all by raising him from the dead. What a precious promise we have that one day we shall see him as he is and become like him when you conform us to the glorious image of your own dear son. Father, help our church to be a living church with your words on our lips and your joy in our hearts and give us a testimony that is real and appropriate to all that we ever come to know. That we know this gospel, that our Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised on the third day. Help us, Lord, to just be a flaming fire for your glory. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message from Liberty Lake Church in Liberty Lake, Washington. Our pastor, our elders, and our prayer watch team are available to pray with you or to answer any questions you may have. Contact us through www.LibertyLakeChurch.com or follow us on Facebook. We look forward to hearing from you and welcome any comments you may have. As always, we appreciate your prayer support. Join us next week on God's Word for You for today for another message from Liberty Lake Church. Thank you again, and God bless.